The European Union has not treated us well. Stupid European elites jumping off the cliffs once again. Yes, you are the guilty people and you refuse to accept it. This is EU Scream, the progressive politics podcast from Brussels. I'm James, a journalist who's crisscrossed Europe for 15 years now, covering politics and the economy. I'm Tom. I've been a lobbyist and spin doctor in Brussels for many years, and I've spent the last decade fighting climate change. In this episode, Disinformation in Perspective, historian Heidi Twarek talks to us about her brand new book, News from Germany, which deals with the malign influence campaigns that foretold Nazism. She shares lessons from her research that could help safeguard democracy in the age of social media. First, Tom and I discuss what Facebook, Google, and Twitter say they are doing to curb interference in the run-up to elections for a new European Parliament. Hey, Tom. James. So, every policymaker in Brussels has become very good at looking serious, like they are carrying the weight of the world about the internet being used to swing elections with fake news and disinformation. Yeah, totally, man. Everyone's on this game right now. Of course, there will be interference. There will be disinformation. Already is. Lots of it. Getting more every day. But given how these European elections have, for decades, had such a low turnout, like 40%, they have also, for decades, yielded people and parties with the loudest voices who attract protest votes. Yeah, it's a significantly protest vote-driven process in many countries. It's a bit like it's the amateur hour of European politics to a great extent. So you get some loonies. So the thing is, you know, how much can you really blame social media interference for the appearance of kind of anomalous political movements at the parliament? Anyway, for enlightenment about social media and what it's doing to prepare to fight disinformation in these upcoming elections, I read the latest report submitted to the European Commission by Twitter, Google, and Facebook. And so did you. I did. These are the reports in which these companies, basically monthly up to the election, they have to report into the European Commission on what they're doing to prevent malicious interference via social media in the election process. Yeah. And I thought I'd quiz you on one thing I learned from each of the three reports. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, I did read them. It was late. Go ahead. Okay, number one, Twitter. Yeah. All right. If you really cared, like Twitter does, what were you... If you really cared, like Twitter does, what were you celebrating on February the 5th? Oh, my word. Now you may have caught me here. Um, I'm not sure I read this bit. Damn. They kind of, I, they were ma- they celebrating the release of their political ads service where you can go and look at which political ads have been run by who on Twitter? I mean, they do talk about that, and I see that came on stream for the EU on March 11th. So, no. Damn. The answer... I mean, I'm sure it's just slipped your mind, but February the 5th was annual hashtag safer internet day. Oh, of course it was. <laughs> so oh, I made a cake, I wore the t-shirt, I can't believe I forgot. So, so creating an annual day has always guaranteed success, right? 
totally. And, you know, who wants to criticize Safer Internet Day, right? Because you look bad if you criticize something that's partly at least aimed at making the internet safer for kids. That's all great. But <laughs> I would ask, what is this doing in an elections report about safeguarding our democracies? I mean, who cares if Twitter launched specific safer internet day emojis and hashtags when far-right groups are buying misleading ads? These are quite thick reports. Like, these are 20, 30, 40-page reports. Although most of them notably annex January's report <laughs> yes. to February's report, right? So that, yes. that yeah, to kind of bulk that, them that, up. That, that thickens them up Yeah, exactly. Considerably. Bulks, bulks them out a bit. But a lot of it isn't actually about disinformation, indeed straight misinformation. Most of them are about kind of tools which could help, but there's very little which is like bang on point. So in response, the commission told Twitter, quote, to show more progress on the scrutiny of ad placements, as well as to report on actions to protect its services against malicious automated accounts, spam and other activities. You can do better, I think. Is right. What the commission yeah. What they're saying is like, get on point. Yeah. Right. I mean, talk to us about what we actually need to hear. Number two, Facebook. If you're Facebook, what does the acronym CIB stand for? Oh, now I did see this. Wait a minute. Um, the internet. No, it's not internet. It's it's inauthentic. Yeah, it's something about dodgy behavior. Coordinated inauthentic behavior. My new favorite acronym. Like um, when you're out at a restaurant and people pretend to get out their wallets altogether when they know the host is going to pay anyway. Coordinated <laughs> inauthentic behavior. I tell you, I tell you, I totally. Tell you. It's, it's definitely my go-to acronym. Yeah, and the interesting thing about coordinated inauthentic behavior is the some of the numbers involved. Yeah. So, like the number of accounts they took down. So yeah, Facebook removed 1.2 million accounts, I guess globally, in the last quarter of last year. And in the UK in the past few weeks, Facebook removed nearly 140 Facebook and Instagram accounts, pages and groups, a lot of them apparently far-right and anti-far-right activists. I quote from Facebook, We continuously disrupt coordinated, inauthentic behavior which is when people or organizations create networks of fake accounts to mislead others about who they are or what they're doing to manipulate public debate for a strategic goal. Which is pretty interesting since the European Commission told Facebook, provide more information on specific actions taken against breaches of its community standards such as misrepresentation or inauthenticity. In all of these reports, there's some kind of language around we don't make judgments. Kind of, we're dealing with behavior, not positions. They're basically saying, we do not take editorial responsibility for our platform, right? We recognize there are varieties of behavior, some of which may also be used by people who peddled misinformation, disinformation, or malicious information. And so we're going to deal with behavior. And we're going to deal with, you know, this kind of ad placement behavior, or this kind of coordinated behavior. We'll deal with the behaviors that the kind of people who post it undertake. There's something slightly slippery about that. You know, there's this idea that's being promoted by the social media platforms and by Brussels regulators too. Media literacy, making smarter news consumers. Like, how would this kind of thing fight highly calibrated neurotechnological micro-targeting, where the message has been ginned up and primed by a series of prior customized messages that can hack someone's decision-making processes. 
really, how far does that get us to reconciling freedom of speech, manipulation of our online environment, and getting some kind of consensus among EU member states that they do have the evidence base and the legal basis for stronger regulation of the platforms? I would, yep, that sounds exactly right to me. Let's move on. Number three, Google. So, in which country did Google report the most instances of misrepresentative advertising out of a total of 20,627 instances in February? Just to be clear, these ads popped up when you do a search or look at YouTube, and in other places, nobody who speaks normal English can understand. Right. <laughs> I, 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 yeah. I, I spent a lot of time thinking about social media, and I didn't understand what Google was talking about. Anyway, there are apparently other places. These misleading ads include use of mimicry of official government sites, stamps, seals, or agency names, like when an advertiser mimics the layout and design of an official government agency site. Right. That sounds pretty disinformational to me. It does. If I remember rightly... I think it was Italy. It, it was Italy, number one, with 4,208 instances. Distant seconds and thirds, Poland, with 2,613 cases. And then the UK with 2,145. Sadly, no explanation, as far as I could see in that report, about why these countries were disproportionately plagued by this problem. Google apparently blocked ads or, in some cases, disabled advertiser accounts in yeah. these cases. And it says that by taking action on these accounts, we were able to prevent advertisers from using our platform in ways that deceive or scam users, including in ways associated with disinformation campaigns, which is interesting because the European Commission said Google needs to show further progress on the transparency of issue-based advertising. Right, exactly. And again, this is to my earlier point, right? This is Google basically saying, we've found this piece of behavior. Some of the people who do bad things do this, so we're going to stop that type of behavior, and that will have an impact. But it's like they're, they're coming at the problem by solving other problems instead of getting right into the middle of it and saying, well, hang on, okay, we have a number of people who are literally trying to undermine the democratic process here, and we're going to make some editorial decisions about what that looks like and what that doesn't look like. And, you know, they've got some good stuff in there on, you know, checking out the political parties that are actually political parties. You're going to have to do proper registering before you can get an ad account, IDs and all of that stuff. But again, they're not just coming at the problem right on. They don't seem to be deciding that there are malicious actors. Like, you know, how, how are you playing that? And none of that is clear from these reports. Of course, they are under this voluntary code of practice. So whatever they do in this relationship with the European Commission in the lead up to the elections is completely off their own bat in a way. I don't even know if the European Commission or the EU could legislate in this area if it wanted to. There's so many different points of view and concerns about free speech. And, you know, much to my surprise, there is still some debate about whether AI, artificial intelligence, is effective enough to remove even provably false stuff right away. It could be complicated and lots of people are going to have various views on it. But at the end of the day, the tech platforms now host the public debate. There's a brilliant book, Democracy Hacked, by Professor Martin Moore. If anyone hasn't read it, please do. It's brilliant. His point is the tech platforms now host the public debate. And the regulatory relationship between government and those platforms is the future of democracy. 
Heidi Twarek is an assistant professor at the University of British Columbia and a non-resident fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. We spoke about her new book, News from Germany, which looks at the battle to control news and information in an era of immense turmoil, spanning the First World War, the Weimar Republic, and Nazism. One of Twarek's core arguments is that power over content and distribution held by British, French, American, and eventually German news agencies is comparable with the power now wielded by Google, Facebook, and Twitter. Another core argument of Twarek's is that the mistakes made amid the hysteria over information warfare during the first half of the 20th century hold valuable lessons for how to safeguard democracy in the first half of the 21st. I first asked her to give a rough sketch of the parallels between the two eras. So much of the time, we tend to hear this potted rhetoric where people say, the internet, it's so unprecedented. We've never had a technology that crosses borders before. And one of the major things you can draw from this book is that actually these problems are not at all unprecedented. Some of the speed and the scale, certainly, but the underlying patterns of these problems, actually there are lots of, of parallels. So, so there's three or four major news agencies from the mid-19th century all the way up until the late 20th century. And most people have absolutely no idea that it's news agencies controlling most of news supply. And that's really quite parallel to the internet giants that we have today, a few major companies that are controlling a lot of the ways that we see news today. So this problem of having just a few companies that dominate how we receive news is extremely old. And the second part of this parallel is the sort of technological aspect where Germans become really invested in developing radio technology for the sorts of visions of news that they want to achieve, just like China wants to develop internet and other surveillance technologies for the sort of political state that it wants. And then finally, the sort of geopolitics of this. So the question is not, does information warfare happen? Because we see that's been happening for over 100 years. You know, what happened is not that suddenly Russia invented information warfare in 2015. Rather, we just forgot about it for a few decades. Information warfare is always there. It's sort of the technologies that change and how the information warfare adapts to those technologies. Yeah, exactly. And why, why is it that all of a sudden certain countries come invested in it? Because in the late 19th century, a few Germans are interested in trying to control news. So Bismarck, the long-term chancellor of, of Germany, is pretty interested in talking with newspaper correspondents, but most Germans don't really care that much. And it's from around 1900 when Germans start to think Germany needs to be a global and imperial power. And then they look at what are the accoutrements of being a global power and they say, ah, one part of this is news. And we have a new system that's really boxing Germany in. And what we need is to use new technologies to send news from Germany around the world, because otherwise this is a massive disadvantage for us geopolitically and in terms of our foreign trade. And that, to me, is a pattern that we see with multiple other countries today. I really like that quote from David Sarnoff, the head of the NBC network in the US, where he says that this Zisan Tower south of Berlin was, quote, the most potent agency for political doctrine the world has ever known. So, I mean, the more that you read this stuff, the more one thinks of some of the technologies that we have around today and how politicians talk about them. Yeah, it's actually really extraordinary. So David Sarnoff is talking about this in the 1930s, and the Season Tower is, is one of Germany's many 
towers that have been constructed uh, to disseminate radio and wireless. And that one was strengthened before the 1936 Olympics that happened in Nazi Germany, which the Nazis want to use to you know, showcase their prowess. And some of that gets undermined by, by Jesse Owens winning a lot of the sprinting races. But you, you take some of the quotations that I found and you could almost make them parallel with what politicians are saying today about the internet. And I think that gives us a really good lesson to be a little bit more sanguine about the power of new information technologies to just take a little bit of a step back and say, okay, if this isn't completely new, what are the patterns that underlie this? And what are the ways that we can deal with this in a way that isn't continually devolving into mass panic and hysteria? Okay, so you're a historian, so it would be remiss of me not to drill down a little bit in some of the amazing research that you've done. The kind of history of the responses in the United States and in the UK to the German news agency, which I'd never heard of, called Transocean in the Nazi period by J. Edgar Hoover, the House on American Activities investigation at the time, and by MI5 in Britain. It's like there's nothing new under the sun. So, so Transocean, which basically nobody has heard of until I start investigating it, is actually extraordinarily powerful in supplying news from Germany around the world from the World War One era all the way into the Nazi period. And in the, the World War II period, in fact, Transocean is supplying the most amount of news to places like Japanese-occupied China. So it really shows us this is more a feature of these technologies rather than a bug. There are uh, some differences now. So the micro-targeting that something like the Internet Research Agency can do, trying to reach just very small groups through Facebook's things like lookalike audiences is, is a difference from what we have in the first half of the 20th century. But I think we can still learn a lot from this history. So the second part of it is we can use these moments, these realizations to start rethinking how to strengthen and reform our own media sector to really attend to people's needs and concerns. Why are people susceptible? Why are these sorts of internet research agency stories or alt-right news resonating? I think it pushes us to think a lot deeper about what is going on within our own societies that this sort of news uh, resonates. Right. Once we understand that the supply will always be there, it reminds us that we need to look at the demand side as well. Yeah, that's a great, that's an absolutely great way of thinking about it. And I think what well, the other thing this story shows us is that actually, you know, lies and, and racism, they can resonate for far longer with far more people than we might optimistically believe. So we shouldn't be complacent, but we really need to search for those underlying reasons why there's demand for this kind of news. So what in your research, what, what became your sort of go-to example in news from Germany of what we're loosely calling these days fake news or disinformation. I'm wondering if it's something from one of the right-wing news agencies that were springing up, uh, you know, during the Nazi period and in the run-up to the Nazi period. One of my favorite examples is from a right-wing nationalist news agency in the Weimar period. So Telegraph Union is extremely anti-communist. So they want to stop any kinds of, of trade or relationships between Weimar Germany and the Soviet Union. And they also want to paint the Weimar government as being far too left-leaning as a way to try and get more and more people onto the side of voting for the right-wing nationalist autarkic party that the owner of Telegraph Union, Alfred Hugenberg, supports. In 1926, all of a sudden, there's this story that the interior minister of Soviet Russia has been assassinated. Think dreadful story, terrible violence in Soviet Russia. It turns out the story is just completely made up. 
and that it's conveniently being spread at the same time as Weimar Germany is trying to sign a major trade treaty with the Soviet Union. So it's just a completely outrageous lie, sort of akin to Pope endorses Trump in 2016. The Soviets get extremely upset. It nearly undermines a massive trade treaty. And what it also shows is that the Weimar government suddenly realizes, hang on a moment, we don't really understand this system where all of a sudden, unexpectedly, we can't even counter these totally outrageous lies. We can no longer reach vast swaths of our population who are getting news just from this major right-wing news agency. We have no real way to counter the sorts of narratives that they're spreading. And that, to me, is a really good example of how these sudden moments like 2016, what they do is is they point up a system that has already been building uh, for quite some time. So we shouldn't think about 2016 as the beginning of this, but rather just surfacing all sorts of problems in new supply that we had before. Okay, two words appear in in the book that have, uh, at least one of them has resurfaced, at least in American politics. They are Lügenpresse and Systempresse. Maybe you can explain those words a little bit. And I don't know if you know what Trump has said exactly, or people in the in the Trump camp have said. And I don't know if you have seen these words come up again in Europe. So Lügenpresse just literally translates as lying press and Systempresse as system press. And these are both terms that are used by the Nazis to condemn the press that already exists in the Weimar Republic as a press that lies to the people and also a press that is monolithic in its thinking, i.e. supporting democracy. And Systempresse is also used by the Nazis in the 1930s to polemicize against foreign media, so American, British, and French media, to say that they're trying to undermine the strength of, of newly revived Nazi Germany. And I began work on this project really quite some time ago. As you can tell from the, the long end notes, I've been spending a lot of time in archives. And I have to say it was one of the, the most bizarre experiences of the last five years to see these words that I'm reading about in the archives and honestly had thought were dead and buried now resurfacing in all sorts of uh, horrifying ways. So in terms of the, the Trump world, I mean, Trump doesn't necessarily use these terms exactly, but a lot of what he says has some implications that are quite similar. So obviously he talks about the press lying all of the time and, and his rhetoric of the idea of a fake news media that, that lumps the media system together is really quite similar to some of the sentiments behind things like Systempresse. In terms of Europeans, though, we've actually seen these exact terms being used in, in Germany by a couple of uh, far-right groups. So Lügenpresse really first comes back in 2014 with the Pegida demonstrations in East Germany. So Pegida, they use the word Lügenpresse to decry what they think is, is a press that doesn't talk about the dangers of immigration. Um, and then the AfD, the alternative for Germany, tends to use the word Systempresse more to protest at what it thinks is a media system that doesn't talk enough about the dangers of immigration and so on and so forth. So these terms have really come back into currency in a way that, that to me as a historian is deeply, deeply disturbing. When we go, If we go back to the Weimar period, there were attempts during the Weimar, of course, to de-escalate the growing tensions within German society, but that backfired. Are there any sort of uh, cautionary tales in all of that about going for strong regulation now of what we're seeing online? Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why I really spend time in the book going through all of the different ways that Weimar officials really try to fight back in this. Because I think one of the, the myths about the Weimar era is that 
Weimar bureaucrats didn't really do anything. And then all of a sudden we get the Nazis. And I'm really trying to show here that they actually tried an enormous amount of things. They were really well aware of the dangers to democracy that the rise of, of far right media systems are posing. So I think there's, there's really sort of three major parallels and, and lessons. Uh, the first is that it teaches us to think very long term about the unintended consequences of what these laws are trying to do. So we might like a fake news law in France when an Emmanuel Macron or equivalent is president. Uh, but would we like something like that in Hungary or if Marine Le Pen is in power? And that's a major reason why the Nazis can actually have a ready-made news infrastructure is because those who are democratically minded think we should have more and more state supervision of news because that will keep out the Nazis. And then, of course, that, that means the Nazis have a ready-made infrastructure. So we really need to think about the long-term consequences. These officials just, they, they invest an enormous amount of energy into news. But in some ways, what that means is that Weimar officials are spending less time attending to the real grievances of Weimar citizens at a point when during the Great Depression in the early 30s, 30% of Germans are unemployed. So if people's underlying economic and social circumstances are just miserable, news simply cannot cover that up. A fantastic campaign will not obscure that discontent forever. You know, the, the European Commission has its own action plan on disinformation. It is a constant, constant conversation in Brussels ahead of the upcoming European elections. What can we learn from news from Germany about rulemaking that we're seeing in Europe? So I'd say there's, there's three big lessons that, that we can learn. Uh, the first is we've got to think through the worst case scenarios of what the action plans and other things we're devising can actually produce if we end up with more authoritarian-minded governments. These are tools we are producing, and they can be used by authoritarians within the European Union as well as Democrats. So we've always got to think, you know, what will an Orban or someone even more authoritarian than Orban, what will they do with these, with any new tools that we might afford those governments? The second is that, that often these plans, they focus on fact-checking or things that have to do with what I'm going to call counter-messaging. Uh, but this can reactivate the frame of the disinformation that you're trying to prevent. And the Weimar government really gets stuck in this kind of reactive pattern where it's constantly issuing denials that aren't even necessarily reaching the people who are reading these stories about false assassination attempts. And it just becomes this, this trap in which there is no positive values-based message that also resonates. And the third thing is that we actually really have to understand how social media companies work. So how can we have an action plan on disinformation if we don't even really understand how the algorithms of massive social media companies work, how they can be gamed, do they in fact have algorithms that push people to stay on the platforms more when they evoke negative emotions like anger or fear? Because what News from Germany, the book shows, is that these networks behind the news, they are incredibly powerful. There's a recent survey by the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism at Oxford, and it showed that only about 30% of Americans or Brits even understood that their Facebook feed was being algorithmically organized. That's an enormous amount of power that's afforded to social media because most people don't even understand that it's an algorithm. They think it's just chronological or somehow neutral. So any plan to curb disinformation or combat it is kind of bound to fail if it doesn't understand the mechanisms of how social media platforms actually work. I'm getting the sense that you wouldn't necessarily want some magical solution to fighting fake news. You would want some very sort of command and control uh, diktats coming down saying, hey, 
Facebook, hey, Twitter, hey, Google, uh, show us how this algorithm works and let's see whether that's good for society. Is that, uh, am I, am I going too far? Maybe that goes a smidge too far, but we certainly need more transparency from companies in a way that, that also pays tribute to the fact that they are private firms that shouldn't necessarily be required to reveal all of their algorithms. So to, to give an analogy to when we had newspapers, we didn't require editors to tell us every day exactly why they decided to put X story on the front page rather than Y. And so I think the algorithms can be slightly akin to that. But what we do need is to be able to actually see what is the equivalent of the newspaper that is being served to different people. Journalists, for example, from ProPublica have shown all sorts of troubling ways in which up until very recently, it was possible to use quite racist categories on Facebook to target different groups of people, something that certainly within uh, EU law and within American law as well, we wouldn't want to see. So I think what's important is to think about how can we gain better transparency that doesn't necessarily provide this data to every single person, but enables researchers and governments to have a much stronger sense of what exactly are companies doing? What is the effect of their communications? And then how can we actually work together with them to find real solutions to some of these problems? But if we don't even know how these companies are working, we're just roaming around in the dark as we're creating legislation. And and that's a very problematic place to be in. That's EU Scream for this week. You can check our website at euscream.com for links to topics discussed in the show and for more episodes. Please rate us on iTunes, tweet about us at EU Screams, and like us on Facebook. EU Scream is edited and mixed by me, James Cantor. Tom Brooks and I produce the show. Laura Natali plays our piano. Thanks for listening.